Welcome to another episode of Said Your Nan, a podcast tackling the stigma of men's mental health, proudly presented by On The Men Charity. My name is James. And my name is Stuart. We're just two guys that got together to raise awareness on men's mental health. During these episodes, we will talk about important issues facing men and their mental health. We are by no means professional and the opinions in this podcast are our own, but please feel free to join in the conversation. Each episode will see us discuss different topics to help everyone better understand the ways that men deal or don't with their mental health. Overall, our aim is to get people talking. Welcome to this episode of Sejanan. As we mentioned in last week's podcast, this episode, James will be sharing his story around the loss of his daughter back in 2017. This is a very emotional episode and contains discussions on baby loss and trauma, so we do understand if you don't wish to listen today. The telling of this story was pre-recorded and James and I will return to talk around this. Here's James with his story. I'm going to share with you now um, probably one of the worst experiences in my life um, and talk openly and honestly about it. I want to take you back to the 29th of August, 2017, kind of the day that my life changed forever. At that time, I had two sons, Daniel, who was 11, and Jack, who was nine, and my wife, Diane, who was 39 weeks pregnant with our third child. Uh, I'd spent a really long week on the road at work, probably covered about two and a half thousand miles in that week, um, and we hit the bank holiday weekend. We just moved into a new house. It was a massive upheaval upheaval for us, um, and we'd taken the action to move you know, 45, 50 miles away from the rest of our support network and family. Uh, we spent that weekend decorating, stripping mouldy old wallpaper off the walls. Um, and then Sunday, we'd arranged to meet some friends who were visiting down at uh, Canberra Sands, which is, for anyone who doesn't know, it's a local holiday destination down here. So we'd done that. We'd had a great evening, but we'd stayed far too late. We sat in this static caravan that they were uh, they were renting for the weekend and uh, watched all this thick, thick fog rolling uh, off of the sea. Um, it was the most bizarre experience I'd ever seen. We left there at about quarter to one in the morning. Um, the journey, probably about 35 minutes back home, down a number of uh, winding country lanes that was really uh, difficult to drive. So during that journey, uh, I came to a hairpin bend, which uh, due to the fog, I couldn't see. The car went flying into a ditch at the side of the road. And that would have been okay in the loosest possible sense had there not already been a transit van in the ditch. And I later learned that the driver of that van was heavily intoxicated and had lost control hours before and was asleep in the cab of the van behind the wheel. So my car ploughed straight into the back of that transit van. And due to the angle of the impact, the whole A-frame at the top of the car crumpled uh, into my wife, pinning her into her seat. Luckily, my two sons were in the back of the car, were only shaken. Um, a passerby had stopped and phoned the emergency services, and she took my sons and, and looked after them while the emergency services arrived, and I stayed in the car with my wife. She told myself and the paramedics that she felt like she was starting to have contractions, being 39 weeks pregnant. So in my head, I'm thinking that's completely plausible. You know, an accident like this, could the stress of it could have brought the labour on, um, but we just had to deal with it. As time rolled on, emergency services got to work. 
literally cutting my car apart around around me. And uh, it got to the point where, you know, I knew they were close to kind of taking my wife out of the car. I put a call into my parents just to tell them what was going on. That was at around 3 a.m. at that point. Kind of amusingly, I got a bit of an ear bashing from my mum on the phone while I was out driving at that time of the morning and uh, as, as, you know, parents do. So whilst I kind of explained what had gone on, she agreed to meet me at the hospital they were taking uh, Diane to so she could take my two boys and look after them. So Diane was rushed by ambulance. Um, I only had superficial cuts over my body. Um, so I followed in a support car with my two sons. That journey seemed to take forever. And I had a million things running through my head. You know, how had it happened? Could I have done anything to stop it? But also that Diane was in labour and soon I'd get to meet my new child. We arrived at the hospital and rushed into a family quiet room when my parents were already there waiting. The surgeon came into the room and I was taken into a private area to get an update. It was at that point the surgeon advised me that we'd lost the baby. And at that point, my legs completely went from under me. I'd been so convinced that uh, Diane had gone into labour and everything was going to be okay and I was going to get to the hospital and, you know, potentially even find out that they, they delivered the baby by an emergency caesarean. So I then had the, new, the stress of having to go back and break that news to my two sons and to my mother and father that were sitting waiting for me. Uh, after a little while, uh, they left the hospital and took my two boys with them and I was taken to, to where my wife was in a, in a room. So, I, I mean, the next couple of hours were a complete whirlwind. So, um, you know, Diane had to have a number of tests and some minor surgeries to deal with some initial wounds. Um, and we were then moved on to the maternity ward. And we were given two options by the consultant that came to see us. It was wait for a natural labour to start um, because she was already 39 weeks pregnant. Or, uh, but that could be a number of days, or opt for a caesarean. We discussed and we agreed that it wasn't fair for Diane, with everything that had gone on, to then go through the natural childbirth process. So um, she was given a general anaesthetic, taken away. Um, they put her under general because she had some other wounds they wanted to deal with at the same time. And I was left in that maternity room, sitting there looking at four walls, brightly decorated with baby paraphernalia, for several hours by myself just waiting again with my own thoughts in my head so finally the midwife came back into me and she said i have your daughter here ready to meet you so she was brought into me in what they call a cold cot um now that's basically it's a it's a cot that is chilled like a fridge and the midwife then suggested that i prepared page for when Diane returned from surgery. So there I am on my own in this room with my deceased baby daughter, cleaning her, dressing her. And, and to be honest, that is without the heart doubt, the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. But also knowing that I needed to stay strong and keep it together for my wife who was going to be returning. So Diane was brought out of surgery and we were able to spend the day with Paige. My parents also returned with my two sons and they were able to, to meet her as well. And then, you know, unfortunately, my wife had to stay in hospital for a bit further for some further surgeries. So um, I then had to look after my sons for a couple of days. You know, the added pressure that the next day they were both due to be starting their new schools. Um, as we'd moved over the summer holidays, they hadn't, you know, they, they didn't know anybody at their new schools. It was complete 
new experience for them. So I, I feel for them having to walk into that as well. So during the, during the kind of whole process there, you know, the NHS were fantastic. I cannot fault them. We were making re- preparations and arranging for a funeral, which, again, they helped with. And they arranged a grief counsellor for Diane. And I attended those sessions with her. Um, and I have to say that the lady that was the counsellor was fantastic. But it was all geared towards Diane um, in terms of supporting her and what she'd been through. But I, I think for me, there lies a problem. So everything was geared towards Diane as the mother. And I understand why she needed the support. She'd carried Paige for nine months um, and then gone through this horrific experience. But at no point was there any support offered to me. But And I guess the other side of that coin, to be really honest with everybody, I wasn't holding my hands up and telling everybody I needed help. So just fast forwarding to October 2018, so over a year later, my rainbow was born. Um, and for anybody that doesn't know, uh, the reason I call her a rainbow, it's a, it's a term, a rainbow baby is a term for a child born to a family that has previously lost a child due to stillbirth, miscarriage or uh, death during infant, infancy. And Jodie really is a ray of sunlight in my life every day. Uh, she'll never be a replacement for Paige, but she is a reminder that even in the darkest of times, there can be light. Uh, there's not a day that goes by I don't think um, of Paige and the events of that day, punishing myself for the events and what I could have done differently. Something that I'm going to have to live with for the rest of my life. Now, I guess, you know, you might be thinking, why am I sharing this with you all? And, and I guess ultimately, because the best way to overcome things like this is to talk about it. And I may have not got any help after the events of August 29th. By sharing my experiences and talking to people, I'm hoping that it will spur other people to share their experiences as well. So just to summarise from me, it's okay not to be okay. And I think that's, you know, that's probably the statement I live by on a daily basis. It it really is okay to not be okay. And it is good to talk. Uh, Thanks, James, for sharing that story. I understand it was probably quite difficult for you to to go through that again and, and talk about it again um but yeah but but thank you and I, I think that the important thing now to address from that discussion is now to probably just ask you a few questions about it if that's all right with you yeah absolutely yep um they're probably questions you've gone over a million times in your head or things that we've probably spoken about um you know since that time but um I guess some of the things I was uh, just sort of mulling over in my head is, is you know, prior to the accident, before, um, you know, before that evening or during that evening, before you left your friends, what was your, your state of mind? How were you feeling before you left the house? Um, it had been a good evening. We'd, we'd spent time having a joke and a laugh, but, uh, you know, in my own mind reflecting on it, we'd, we'd stayed far too late. Um you know, we'd had a great evening and everybody was, was happy and enjoying themselves. But, you know, it got to that point in the evening where you could see that everybody was just crashed out on the, the sofas in the, the caravan that uh, my, my friends were hiring. Um, and as, as I said, we kind of sat there and watched this thick fog rolling. I knew, you know, at that point it was late. We should have gone already. We shouldn't have stayed that late. Um, 
so yeah, I was feeling feeling pretty knackered to be honest. I had a really busy week at work, and uh, yeah, just wanted to get home and get to bed. And did you feel like you could drive okay still? Was you quite comfortable at the time when you left the house, or were you retired? Was you like, yeah, it's fine. I know you were conscious that there was fog, but what yeah, was your yeah, absolutely. I was I was wide awake. There was no uh, no issue there at all. Yeah. And um, so I know we, you've obviously spoken about it. So I guess at, at the point of of the accident, how did you? What was your first thought or first feeling? You know, once you know, once you'd realised that's what had happened, and you know, you'd come to a stop, and you know, how was your, where was your head at? What, what, what had kind of gone through your mind? I think when you get into a situation like that, flight or fight kicks in. Really, you know, your adrenaline's coursing through your body. My, my first priority was making sure that uh, obviously Diane wasn't okay. The kids were okay in the back of the car. Um, they were unharmed, um, which was was good. Um, so the priority was getting them out of the car and to safety. Um, and yeah, then then I obviously remained with uh, with Diane until emergency services arrived on the scene. Um, it was quite difficult to make that initial call to the emergency services because at that point in time, I had no idea where I was in terms of you know geographical location. Um, and it was quite frustrating because there was no... Uh, no real signal in that area. Um, I know you know it well, but for for our listeners' sake, it's uh, some windy, very windy country lanes that uh, that come back from a, a seaside resort. Um, and yeah, you're lucky if you get a you know, not even an edge connection on your phone. So you know, trying to use maps to look at where you were was pretty difficult. Um, luckily, the the person that had stopped um, on the road. Uh, who looked after my boys until the emergency services arrived. They also made a call at the same time to the emergency services and they had a better idea of where they were than I did. And when the police finally turned up, because um, I guess with anything within an ac- with any accident is I suppose the police are turning up with a very open mind, but how were you, you treated when you got there? What was their... How did they handle the scene for you? I mean, you know, was there any, did they ask you the standard questions or were they quite empathetic of what happened? How did that kind of go? I I mean, honestly, I I cannot fault the response of all of the services that were involved. So we had, Hmm. you know, the the whole set. So we had the police, we had fire fire brigade and we had um, ambulance attend. Uh, The first responders, the police um, were great. You know, they... They helped keep us calm in the vehicle um, until the fire brigade turned out, um, along with some paramedics. And, uh, you know, I stayed in the vehicle uh, with Diane while they literally cut the, the vehicle apart around us. So they took the roof off, they took the doors off, they took the boot off, they took everything off so that they could safely get her out of the car. Um, at the point they said, you know, we're going to we're gonna take her out of the car now. Uh, I had to get out of the car um, and up the, the kind of grassy bank, if you like, to the, the road. And uh, at that point, the the police officer who was in control of the scene took me to one side, um, asked me some standard questions, which is fine. You know, the, the key one being, had I drunk anything that evening? Um, and wanted to give me a breathalyzer test, which again, is pretty standard, I'm told, for a roadside accident like that. Um, 
obviously I blew completely negative, which is, you know, what I expected. Um, and then he obviously appraised me of the, the, the driver of the other vehicle that was uh, already in the ditch was heavily intoxicated and, and had been arrested. And I guess the, the, the kind of the next step from there was, uh, I think you were telling me about you it being in the support vehicle with the kids whilst Diane was off in the ambulance. Um, and you, you had to obviously do that travel was it must be sort of probably it's about 20 20 minutes i guess isn't it from from where you were up to the hospital it is um, yeah and it, it felt like it just went on forever mm. if i'm really honest you know it's um th- there was a lot of waiting around because they were they were trying to decide whether she needed airlifting to a different hospital which is much further away based on her injuries or um to the, the local hospital and then at the point they agreed the local hospital. Yeah, they, they offered uh, myself and the two boys a lift in the support vehicle. Um, yeah, very, very difficult journey that. Um, you know, the boys were very, very quiet sitting in the back of the car, as you'd, you'd expect from what they'd just witnessed. Um, I, you know, for some reason was making kind of small talk with the driver, um, which in reflection now just felt, probably feels a bit weird. But, but I, I guess I you guess probably that's... didn't really know what else to do, did you? That's the thing. It's, you, it's... No. Yeah. No. And, and at that point, I didn't really know anything. I knew that Diane was okay. Um, we suspected that she'd gone into labour because she felt like she was starting to have contractions. So, you know, what was rushing through my head was like, I'm going to get to the hospital and she's going to be in labour and this baby's going to be coming and we've got to get ready for that. And... I mean, you're talking about the kids in the back of the car and how they were quite quiet. Um, I don't know, the, your, the boys went to your parents, didn't they, to, to sort of be looked after. But when what what kind of support was there for the boys? You know, not not just initially, but I mean, in general, for the boys throughout the whole ordeal. I guess initially quite limited. You know, you're, you're rushed into a, a very busy A&E department and whilst... Uh, they were, you know, taken into a family room, um, and my mum and dad were there to take care of them. So that was that was good, and I was able to then go off and be with Diane. Um, that was kind of it for their support there. And then the next stage of support for them was um, through the schools. So, uh, you know, schools within well where we are within the Kent borough. Um, have to self-fund um, any counselling that they need. Um, and, I, and I know this through years of being a, a governor of a primary school. There is no set budget for this stuff, so it is very difficult. There is a lot of children that need, uh, you know, mental health services within schools. So whilst they were both prioritised as best as possible, there's only so much of a counsellor and so much money to go around. And do you, I mean, I mean, it's not a, we've already said this, we're not professionals, we don't know what the rights and wrongs are, but do you think there could have been something different done or something better done for them, probably closer to the time? Is there, you know, are there options that could be provided? In, a, in an ideal world, I guess, yes, you know, even if it's just somebody to sit down and have that initial conversation with them and, um, you know, gauge where their heads are at. Yeah. 
And, it, you know, in my head, it's kind of, again, like you say, we're not professionals, right? But in my head, it's that kind of have that initial conversation, do the assessment and then go, you know, no, they are okay and they can be lower down the waiting list or no, we've got a real, you know, potential problem here. This person needs to be prioritised. Because there are stages, I suppose, aren't there? You've got, there's the initial stage of the accident and the boy's probably processing that because they're, they're only young, you know, so that's, mm. you know, in, that, in that respect, they're not, and they've never been in an accident, I don't think, before, have they? I mean, I don't know. Just, no, no, not at all. No. Their first accident, they, they're, they're processing the accident. So I guess there's that point of, are you okay? Are you hurt? How are you feeling? Try and gauge their kind of mental condition at that point and see how they feel from that process. Mm. But then there's the point, obviously, that the expectation of you then having to go and tell them the news of what's actually happened is that's another level on top of the accident that they're then dealing with to then go, well, actually what's the, is there not going to be somebody there now to just go, you know, dad's just told you some news. How do you feel? Yeah, they, they, you know, I suppose they've been through a lot when you think of it like that. They'd seen, I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect they were probably both asleep in the back of the car when the, uh, you know, the actual accident happened. So they would have been woken up um, by the car coming off the road. Um, they've seen the, what had happened to their mum um, and the kind of uh, the gory side of that, if you like, and been visible to that. Um, got to the hospital. Um, yeah, I so say luckily my mum and dad were there to support. And uh, when I found out that... Um, you know, we'd lost that. We'd lost Paige. Then uh, I had to go back and give them that news, um, and maybe that's where that additional support would have been useful. Yeah, and I guess we all know that you know there's a a great deal of strain on hospitals, and 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 it's it's not. It's like they can't have a million people ready to speak to people at any at any given time, and I guess that's probably where I'm getting at. Is it's there's a balance, isn't there? You, you mm. it, how do you find what's the training needed for people to be able to gauge that? And I, you know, it's always an interesting conversation to have. And like I said, we're not professionals, and I would have thought that this is probably something that's been spoken about, you know, through national national um, health trusts across the country, but. Mm. It would be interesting to find out just, you know, what other people's thoughts are that are on that. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, I, I, I do feel for the boys. I do, because they're young, you know, and you just look back at it and you just think um, they had a lot to deal with. And especially with Daniel, you know, when he started, was it, I think you said he started secondary school two days after the accident. Yeah, literally two days. Um, Jack, I think, was a little bit a couple of days after that. So they were both, you know, for for them, it was moving to a new area, it was moving to new schools, new friends, um, and on the back of what had just happened. And did did the school did the did the boys' schools because they were both new to those? They were both new to the schools, weren't they? They were, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, they were both new to the school. And how did the schools deal with that in that first instance for both kids? I mean, how did they? Did they did they engage with you, the parents? Did they talk to you as well as to Jack and Daniel? Uh, in brief, to me, yes, because I obviously had to call them and tell them about what had happened. Um, you know, so they were aware that when the boys came in, that they, you know, they they might have, you know, I don't know for example, burst into tears in class, depending on what's what's going yeah. on and things like that. So, um, you know, and there's there's that. Um, 
I think when you're when you're telling somebody something like that, you know what's happened. People struggle with how to respond. You know, you'll you'll get the the kind of the, well, I'm really sorry for your loss, but Christ, if I had a pound for every time I heard that following that accident, I'd I'd be, you know, owning an island somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is the it is the response, isn't it? It's the kind of the only response that most people know how to give. Mm. Um, and and you're right. It's it, it's a very difficult thing to respond to. Um, obviously, I was on the receiving end of that as well. I mean, I've known you a lot longer and I know how to converse with you in certain situations. Mm. But even that threw me a little bit because I guess, you know, again, I'm one of those people that just sometimes just don't know what to say. And sometimes it's better just to not say anything, you know. But, um, for, you know, from my perspective as your friend, it was just to be there for you if you needed me. There's not much more I could have really done other than that. And no, no, I, you know, I pre- I really appreciate it, and yeah, absolutely. That's that's all I needed at the time was to know yeah. that I had people around me that uh, were there if I needed them. Um, I was, I'm not as, I'm a lot stronger now uh, mentally than I was back then. I think back then my default response was just to shut down and shut everybody out and just, uh, you know, try and battle through it myself in my head. Um, you were trying to be and a that's man. really. Well, yeah, absolutely. Man up, you know. I, I've got you know, young kids that are just starting school. I've got a wife that's still in hospital. Um, I'm in a, a town that's you know, forty five minutes away from the rest of my family, uh, for support and stuff. And whilst they were brilliant throughout, I didn't want to have to keep putting that burden on them. So you know, I was just juggling everything at once, and I took the decision to return to work after two weeks as well. Which again, I, in hindsight. I probably shouldn't have done that. I should have taken more time. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think that's, that's, mm. I think a lot of people will look at it, especially from a man's perspective, is you just want to, I'm just going to carry on. I'm just going to get on with it. Um, because you don't really realize just how much of it really is affecting you. And in your case, you know, in this particular instance, I mean, how did you, how did you suppress the, I know you said you kind of shut off and you shut away, but what, consequences of doing that affected you um in terms of consequences i guess at the time it wasn't it just wasn't i was i was so busy dealing with the the day-to-day of making arrangements and making sure everything was as it needed to be you know making funeral arrangements making sure that i was liaising with diane's work to you know around maternity leave and things like that and the boys schools it was it was easy to bury myself and go back, you know, dealing with work. It was ever easy to bury myself with that when I was mm-hmm. uh, sitting there quietly on my own. That's when that voice starts creeping into your head. And that's what I really didn't want. Yeah. And in terms of um, ways that you dealt with it or ways that you comforted yourself, you know, did you turn to any kind of, you know, vice or did you look towards finding things to take your mind off of it? Um, not, not short term. I, I guess, you know, to say I turned to alcohol was probably a fair statement, but not in terms of binging on alcohol. I think, you know, I look at um, my, the way I've treated myself over the last 
five years, um, I haven't been great to myself. You know, I've had spurts of, of inspiration and trying to turn my life around and, you know, lose weight, get fit, all that good stuff. But um, yeah, I, I look at it and I go, actually, I've been a, a, a right idiot in terms of just how I've treated myself both physically and mentally during that period. And it's only since we really started this a couple of years ago that it's made me focus more on uh, my own mental well-being. Yeah, and I've noticed the change as well um, Mm. in that time. But I was just curious as to, because I guess being in this situation, any situation, any high-pressure situation, any traumatic situation is is it is quite common to turn to drinking more, eating more, comforting yourself mm. in some way that will pull you away from it. Um, and it's it's trying to find the ways to bring you out of it. And and I do think it's very different being a man dealing with these huge traumatic experiences because, because you don't talk about it, because it is generally accepted to suppress and deal with it to protect your family and look after your family to look after those you believe that have been affected more than you, but yeah. it can have consequences. Um, you know, and, and I guess it's, it's finding the support to help with that. And I guess at the time, you know, if you were the way you were feeling, what did you do? I mean, who did you, did you not think there was someone you could reach out to? Did there not anywhere that you could have found support? Was there nothing for you out there that you felt, you know what, I need to go and on anything that you knew about? That's probably a better option, isn't it? Rather than saying, why didn't you do there, it? There was nothing I knew about. And, and to be fair, I wasn't really in the frame of mind to go looking. Um, again, you know, my, my focus was very much on making sure the family was all right, making sure that their needs were met. Um, and again, I can't, I can't fault the NHS for... Uh, the services that that Diane received. Um, She had a a dedicated uh, women's health counsellor locally who, um, I won't mention her name, but she was like a living legend within the NHS uh, (laughs) in these neck of the woods. So um, she's one of these people where she just gets shit done. Like she could just make a phone call and make stuff happen. Because yeah. she's so respected and well known. Um, and t- to give you an example, so uh, we'd been through, or Diana had been through a year of therapy with this individual, and she was coming to the point of, uh, you know, severing ties, if you like. You know, there was, wasn't much more she could do. Uh, we then told her that um, Diane was pregnant again, um, and we were at the time. Quite rightly, Diane was quite nervous about the whole pregnancy situation based on what her body had been through previously. So um, the GP was saying that we couldn't have a scan till 12 weeks. And that was what the big thing that we wanted was an earlier scan just to kind of settle our minds that everything was okay. Uh, We were sitting there in front of this counsellor. She made one phone call that lasted two minutes, got off the phone and went, you've got a scan tomorrow morning at nine o'clock, go to the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. And the... The thing around that is, is is that's the kind of support you would just expect anyway, rather than having to rely on somebody that is well respected. Like that that kind of um, demand or request for somebody that's gone through a traumatic experience, coming from a counsellor that obviously knows what's right for their patient, mm. should be something that everybody should be um, should have available to them. 
So you sit there and you go, this is great. And you just like to think, and actually you don't really know, do you? Because you only have the one counsellor, but you'd like to think mm. that that's something that anyone could have done. Anyone can visit the NHS. Anyone can go through this process and, and be able to get that support as just a, as just a matter of course, you know, because it's quite, you know, it's quite important that in this particular instance, you wanted to know you needed to have your mind put at rest. Yeah. But then speaking of Jody, what um, what made you decide to go ahead and try again? I mean, obvious reasons. You wanted a child, um, but I mean, but what 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 process did you go through considering what you had just been through to make that decision with Diane to go forward? So, I guess. We'd had the two boys and I'd always said that was it. I didn't want any more kids. You know, I, I wanted the two. That was that was fine. Um, it's quite a big age gap, as you know. Um, then uh, my uh, my niece was born um, and that kind of set the, the, the hairs running again, if you like, with Diane in terms of, you know, the, the broodiness that comes with that. Uh, we had a lot of conversations and agreed to have... Um, one more, which uh, was Paige. Um, obviously, with them, what happened, um, we had some long conversations about it. Uh, quite shortly after the accident, actually, it wasn't um, It wasn't like we, we kind of left it. We were having conversations about it. And, you know, my, my view was very much, uh, you know, we can still try and have another child as long as medically you're able to. Um. I suppose it's bittersweet to a degree because, um, and I said it when I recorded the the kind of story there. If um, you know Jody, as you know, is the absolute apple of my eye, um, and if what happened hadn't happened, Jody probably wouldn't exist today. Hmm. No, and that's the kind of question well not the question that's a kind of thought process isn't it is like if one thing hadn't have ha- happened another thing wouldn't have happened or another thing something had happened something wouldn't have happened it's always the way isn't it is like you, you you sit there and you can think about it until the cows come home but um you know in this particular instance you've 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 continued on that journey but with jody um and you're right she is the apple of your eye i mean i see such an amazing bond between you two won't take away from the fact that she's also my best friend but other than that she was literally talking about you uh just before i came on this uh (laughs) recording it's very funny bless her um but yeah but i mean and when it comes to conversations with people when people say to you like about your kids they ask you how many kids you've got i mean i guess you, you i mean you have to me many a times you've always still very much kept a page in the forefront of that answer which i think is is brilliant you know, it's really, really good. Um, you were talking to me about it the other day, actually, weren't you? And you were saying about how, you know, it's it, it's the reactions that people have sometimes. It is. Um, and it's it's difficult because, you know, you, you'll have those conversations with people you don't really know. And you have those, you know, oh, you know, have you, have you married? You've got kids. Um, and I always dread the have you got kids conversation. And that's not because I'm ashamed of, you know, what I've got, but more it leads to an awkward awkwardness for them yeah you know 
Have you got kids? Yes, yeah, I've got kids. Oh, how many have you got? Well, I've got four. Oh, how old are they? You know, well, I've got, I've got, uh, for example, a 15, a 13 year old. Um, I've got one that's no longer with us. And then I've got one that's three or four. And then you get, oh, oh, I'm really sorry. Do people ever ask you what happened? If you say I've got, a, you know, one that's not with us anymore. Do people find it difficult to get past that question, that response? Or do you find that people do ask? People very rarely ask. Yeah. Um, the ones that I've have had ask, and it's it's you know I could count them on one hand, are normally people that have had suffered some kind of child loss themselves. Well, that yeah, I guess that would make that would make sense for them to want to ask the question. I suppose wouldn't it? a lot of people still mm. question it even many years after any event like that. Yeah. Uh, and throughout the throughout the whole ordeal, I mean, like from. You know, I guess from the coming home from the hospital, more, more so. Did you feel like your family was broken, and you were kind of the one person that had to fix it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, literally, my my world, if you like, was falling around my ears. Um, and yeah, I had to, you know, pick it all back up and put it back together again. And do you f- and, and do you feel like you were doing that all on your own? Was you really kind of just it was just you having to deal with this? Um, mm, yes and no. So my my folks were great and they were there to to support in terms of whatever I needed. Um, again, I just think I was being quite closed off in terms of asking for help um, and just trying my best to muster through it. Um, You know, something that sticks in my mind was the shock that some people felt that, you know, when I actually got, I left the hospital after everything that had happened, the first thing I did was went and hired a car and got in it and drove straight away. And everyone was going, well, how could you do that? Literally two days after what happened. It's like, I just knew if I didn't, I probably never would. Yeah. You've always been quite resilient like that, I think, generally in your personality. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I wasn't. I don't... I've got. I wasn't through this process. That's for sure. Like you know that mm. that spending that day in the hospital and the events that unfolded during that day. Just uh, yeah, that was. Uh, yeah, words can't describe really. Well, I want, I want to take just a couple of seconds to talk about the driver of the van. Um, mm, by all means, you know what. I can't even imagine how you felt, but what was your first thoughts about him? What would, how did you feel about the driver after the incident? So, I guess rage and hatred. You know, that was the that was the you know that emotion that I felt to start with. Um, you know, I really wanted to find him and and really kind of you know tell him what I thought and. As that subsided, you know, I came to the realisation that actually, you know, whilst it was a drunk driver and, you know, they'd had that crash and if that van wasn't in the ditch, things might have been very different. It was a uh, it was a series of events that led to that moment. It wasn't just that one person's fault. Yeah, you know, they they were part of that long chain of events, but they weren't the sole factor. Yeah, and what 
where you've said that now is like you've gone through that process of saying I've kind of worked out there was more to that series of events. What are your thoughts on him now? I mean, is there anything there at all? Do you do you think about it at all? I, I still think about it, yeah. Um, because, but it's part of that that what if chain of thought. Do you know, I'll, I'll never know. Do I forgive him? Do I forgive him for drink driving? No, not at all. No, 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 no. I, it, yeah, I think that's, yeah, I don't think you could really forgive him for that side of it. But I mean, do you... For, I don't do still you, feel the anger and hatred yeah. that I did literally straight after the accident. Yeah. Um, and he's, you know, he's going to have to live with that the rest of his life. I, you know, the the I, I am aware that he knows exactly what happened and what, you know, the consequences of his actions were. And in, interestingly, you were telling me the other day around the um, uh, how he was prosecuted for it, which I found quite mm-hmm. bizarre. If you wanted to just mention about that now, yeah. So, so the prosecution was for for drink driving. They couldn't do anything around uh, the death of Paige um, because she wasn't born yet. So, if she'd been you know, a day old baby in a car seat in the car and died as a, uh, <clears throat> because of what happened, then, you know, they could have prosecuted for that, but because she wasn't born, they couldn't. Did, did that upset you though? I mean, did that, but did the prosecution, did the level of prosecution that he could have had, did it upset you that they couldn't take it further? Or was that not really an issue? I, don't, I mean, because I think I speak to a lot of people when they've, you know, been in situations where somebody's done something and they want to see them prosecute to the full extent of the law. But I mean, I don't really know how it works for you in how your brain works. I think I, I rationalise it to a degree. So, like, if you look at, um, you know, we'll come to on to it. But I've, I've spent quite a lot of time talking to Sands about um, child loss over the last few years, and. Um, you know, a, a baby or a, you know, fetus isn't recognised as a baby until after a certain period of time of gestation. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't get, you know, you don't necessarily get a death certificate. You can't really have a proper funeral and things like that. So, um, you know, and, and in my head, I kind of rationalise it like that in, in that sense, you know, so she wasn't born. And as much as... Uh, I guess where where it messes with my head a little bit is if Diane was going into labour that night, like we thought, I could have arrived at that hospital and found that that she'd been delivered by emergency C-section and I could have been holding her in my arms as as a live baby rather than what ended up happening. And that's probably the biggest shock, isn't it? Because I think, like you were saying earlier on when we were just talking, you said the first thing that was going through your head is that you knew that Diane was in labour. So you wasn't yeah. expecting to go into the hospital to hear the news you heard. No, no, there was a there was a naively a level of excitement there in my yeah. my thoughts. You know, as I'd I'd spent some time that evening towards the end of the evening, we were sitting on the the sofas and watching telly, and I naturally had my hand on her stomach, and I could feel the baby moving around and things like that. So you know, to go from that to then having the, you know Paige delivered to me in that cold cot in that room was just uh, yeah. And I know you said about going back into yourself and kind of finding a minute to just kind of find time to deal with it on your own. But when did you actually grieve? Where where did you find time? 
between making sure Diane was okay, checking on the boys, going back to work after two weeks, you know, having to get an, another car, making sure that you were the support mechanism for your family. When did you stop and when did you grieve? So there's there's three distinct moments that stick in my mind. Um, one was obviously when I was left alone in that room in the maternity suite, um, preparing Paige for, for Diane's return. There was a lot of tears and grief at that point. Um, there was um, obviously the day of her funeral um, and going through that process. Um, I just, I'll never get the image out of my mind about of the size of the, the coffin that she was bought in from the undertakers. You know, mm-hmm. that's just, you know, it can be carried by one person. It's that small. Um, and I think the third one for me was we'd been at a, an appointment, one of the many appointments to follow up at the hospital. And there was a, there was a poster. I, Diane had gone in for a, her appointment and there was a poster on the wall in the, uh, the waiting room that really got me, um, to the words, the words that were on it. And I'll never forget them. So babies lost in the womb were never touched by fear. They were never cold, never hungry, never alone. And importantly, all they ever knew was love. Mm, And that, that statement just broke me completely. Yeah. And I mean, from, from that point on, from those moments that you've got, from those moments you've had, those three sticking points that you've got there that really stay with you. I suppose you don't really ever stop grieving, do you? Like, not, not at any point you actually stop. But does it ever get, does it ever get a little bit easier to deal with? I guess it's like losing any family member. Really, you know, they're always going to be in your thoughts, and you know, you're always going to miss them. Um, mm. like you would a you know a grandparent a mother father whoever you've lost um it's always hard at big celebrations you know her birthday every year will be a, a a bit of a sad day christmas as well obviously has a bit of a knock because you know you'd be thinking about if she was here now what would she be into what what presents would she be getting yes i can understand that i really can understand that and and the sort of things that will go through your mind and and you, there'll always be a christmas and there'll always be a birthday uh, and always be a time to remember. Um, the, the last things I really wanted to ask you were really around um, support. And I, I just mean support in general, because there's a million questions I could ask you about support. But realistically, the real question I've got is, you know, just what support did you get throughout this whole ordeal? Um, being brutally honest very very little Mm. um you know i'll just i guess to kind of walk through it if you like so um the the midwife that dealt with us on the on the actual day um was fantastic in fact you know that's that's how jody got her name um the midwife's name was jody um she was fantastic she was very very um you know supportive but also very shaken by what we'd been through as well um 
again, I kind of look at what happened and if I if I had a chance to support somebody like me that was going through what I was going through, what would I do differently? So, you know, as an example, you know, there I am sitting in this maternity ward in this private room, which has got rainbows and sunshines plastered all over the walls. Um, you know, Diane's gone off for her operation um, and I get the midwife come in and say, right, I've got your, I've got, page outside for you. I'm going to bring her in in a minute um, so you can prepare her for when Diane gets back. Um, and, and as I said in my statement, you know, the page then gets wheeled in to me in a, in a cold cot and I'm just left in this room with my daughter in this cot by myself for what felt like an eternity. And that... Um, I mean, it wasn't, it was probably 45 minutes, I would have thought whilst, you know, they they brought Diane out of surgery, put her in recovery, and then she was well enough to come into the room. But uh, it, it felt like an eternity. And, you know, that that's probably a point where if I thought I needed somebody, it would have been at that moment. That was probably the darkest moment for me through the whole thing. Yeah, and I, I said to you before, I think that I found it very very odd that you'd be left alone in that situation i couldn't i couldn't get my head around it i didn't think that was a a place to be left Mm. without anybody there even if there was just somebody sat in a corner of the room they didn't need to say anything you know but somebody just somebody there to make sure you were all right and and it's it's almost like and and i don't mean this in any any bad way but it's the focus is obviously going to be on the mum Right, I get that. Yeah, yeah, and I get that definitely. Yeah, and that this got nothing to do with that. I think that is a completely separate thing. That is exactly how things should be. But there has to be some form of support at that point for the man as well, not just a Mm. let's focus on this. We'll leave him to do that. And I don't know whether that is because of we are a you know a, a society or a species where it goes the man will just deal with that because that's how it is. Or if that is just an oversight, something that's just not been thought about when it comes to these situations. But it really did. It made my mind boggle a little bit when you mm. told me that. Yeah. And then, like I say, you know, com- coming on from that, um, we got our counsellor aligned, but uh, she was a woman's health counsellor. And whilst, you know, I had some brief conversations with her during those sessions that, that Diane was in and I was attending, they weren't geared towards me at all. There was, you know, I'm <clears throat> at no point did anybody ask me if I needed any counselling or support. But I suppose the flip is I never went and asked anybody. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But then again, but, when you're in the situation you're in, that's not really the first thing you're thinking about. No. No. You know. And I guess uh, you know, after this, we'll talk a little bit more about support that we've obviously encountered since we started doing this you know different places that people can go to because there is help out there isn't there James I mean the, the fact that there wasn't any help in media or or any help that you may well have been aware of at the time you know through our research we've we've obviously seen that there is support 
you know, but probably more after the effect, you know, late, late after the event, sort of later down the line, at, you know, once you've, you've come home and you're, you're dealing with it. Um, but it, it's more that immediate support at the time that I think is missing. I think you'd agree. Yeah, immediate um, emotional support, I think, is the key word. Because there's there's some great work that uh, some charities do that, mm. you know, are there to support families through bereavement in terms of, uh, you know, helping pay towards funerals or um, arranging photographers to come in so you can have some photos taken. Um, again, all, all paid for. Um so there's some great, great stuff out there, but yeah, I am um, following on from that. It's that what's next. So the next thing is you come to that emotional well-being, and, you know, making sure that you're being looked after. And obviously you say over the years you've spoken and had involvement with Sands. Do you want to tell us a little bit about them and what they do? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I guess following um, following on from what had happened, um, we there's a there's a baby memorial garden in our local town, and you can have a plaque put up there with your your baby's name on and stuff. Um, Paige isn't there, you know. Her ashes are with us at home, but that's a place of uh, remembrance you can go to. So that was uh, funded by Sands. Um. I then started regularly donating to Sands through uh, our payroll of our previous firm. You had the opportunity to donate towards charities, if you remember. So that was uh, that was one that I did. Um, and I've kind of been in touch with them since. So they, um, you know, they're, they're very clear that they're welcome. They're open to all parents and relatives associated uh, with the baby loss. They've got all sorts of stuff out there now. So they've got closed Facebook groups. They have online support meetings, which are really good. Um, they do things, um, activity-based peer support as well. So for example, football-based ones and things like that. Um, they've got a uh, support number, which I will put in the show notes and uh, email addresses that you can reach out to as well. They've also got a fantastic website with a load of resources on Um they are just a fantastic charity for the work they do uh, for parents and families that are going through a situation like this. No, it's good. Yeah. Like you said, we'll, we'll make sure that goes into our, um, into our, our links and we'll make sure that we get some posts put up as well. Um, I also wanted to talk about um, a more local charity to us in the Kent area um, called making miracles. Um, there are a, um, a, birth trauma and baby bereavement care charity, uh, again, offering family support. Um, you know, they've, they've, they've been, um, they've been in action since around 2014 and it's, it's a little bit of a smaller charity. It's very much a, um, Kelly, the owner, she's the CEO. She's, she's obviously been through her own trauma. Um, and this has been brought out, uh, you know, this has come about through this and, um, they um you know they're fantastic they deal with couples therapy they also deal with they very much focus on the men um in 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 baby loss as well and trauma which is um which i think is really quite good uh and also they've got a a podcast much like ours they've got one called baby loss grief and love um which 
you know if if you want to take a listen again we'll put the link in our in our um, spotify and we'll do some posts on instagram so you can go to their pages but you know these are these support mechanisms for people that are out there are are so important and people should never be turned away from wanting to reach out to places like this there is nothing wrong with doing that it is not it is not a bad thing to do and you know that is what they're there for helpful supportive people that want to do good with you so yeah i mean from your perspective james um you know this is probably what really spurred you on wasn't it really to do a little bit more of of this with on the mend you know this was kind of your bit of your your push for it you know so it, it was one of my big pushes, definitely, and I'm sure you'll you know remember the last time I I spoke in depth about this was one of our very first talks that we did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I know it's been tough, so thank you, James. I really appreciate you talking about it. And uh, impossible questions to answer sometimes. <laughs> I, I get, um, mm. but but you know appreciate it, and and I do hope that anybody that's listening to this that has either been through a similar situation, know someone that has um that that this could potentially have some impact and some help for you um but but yeah no i appreciate it, james thank you no thank you thank you i do you know it's it's a subject that i'm always more than happy to talk about so if there is any of our listeners out there that have had uh experiences or previous experiences that want to get in touch you know at the usual contact details a bit at the end of the episode please reach out to us i'm more than happy to have a chat with anybody about it excellent thank you james thanks for joining us today on the next episode we will be discussing positive mental health in the meantime you can get in touch at sedjournan at onthemend.org.uk or at Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Sedjonan, or at On The Mend on Facebook and LinkedIn. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we will speak to you soon. If you would like to donate to the On The Mend charity, please feel free to buy us a coffee. The link can be found in the show notes. 